John Forbes, police sergeant, Broti Ferry Borough Police, states On Sunday the 3rd of November 1912 at 9am, Constable Brown and I, in company with the witness Cooley, proceeded to Elm Grove. I provided myself with a bunch of keys. I tried to open the front door check lock, but without success. I then instructed witness Cooley to break a pane of glass in the kitchen window, to unsnub the window and to enter thereby and open the front door for us, which he did. When witness Cooley opened the front door for us, he said, she's lying dead in the hall here. John Howard Semple, Chief Constable. The hall where the body was found was in a very disordered state and bore evidence of a desperate struggle having taken place. I noted that there was a telephone wall instrument in the hall and that the telephone wires connecting it had been cut. I gave instructions that the body was not to be touched or anything in the house disturbed. I then went to the nearest telephone and got into communication with Dr. Sturrock, Brotty Ferry, the police surgeon, informed him that Miss Milne had been found dead in her house at Elmgrove and asked him to meet me there at the earliest possible moment. Dr. John Frederick Sturrock, MD. After examining the body, I came to the conclusion that Miss Milne had been murdered. I was present at the post-mortem examination of the body, which took place in the mortuary, Constitution Road, Dundee, at 8.30 that same evening. If you want to hear about that post-mortem in more detail, head back and listen to episode 3 if you haven't done so already. The post-mortem concluded that Jean Milne died due to shock and haemorrhage due to a succession of blows by a blunt instrument. But subsequent investigations of her clothing pointed to a carving fork also being used in the attack. There were 20 punctures on the back, representing 10 stabs, 8 punctures representing 4 stabs on the right breast, 2 punctures representing 1 stab on the left breast, just over the heart, and 2 punctures on the right wrist, representing 1 stab. So, we have a good idea of how Jean Milne was killed, but as yet, no idea why or when, or by who. In this fourth episode of the Inside Forensic Science podcast, we're going to consider what we know about when the murder took place. Here's Detective Constable Helen Ireland, a crime scene manager from Police Scotland's major investigations team in Dundee. And first up, Professor Lucina Hackman, a forensic anthropologist from the Levy-Hume Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. So the time since death interval is incredibly important in this sort of situation. And really, if we look at the um, eyewitness testimony, that really comes to the fore because you had a lot of people who saw her on days and other people hadn't seen her since before those days. Knowing the exact time that she went missing or the last time she was around, you can start to pinpoint the last people that saw her and her last movements with some accuracy. Now, this is in the days before CCTV. So today you could go back to your CCTV recordings, but eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. People can't remember. They think they did it something on one day. We did. I I'm, I'm have a hard time sometimes remembering what I had for breakfast, let alone what I was doing a couple of weeks ago. Um, so what that accurate time since death interval does is it allows the investigators to actually really narrow down who was last seen by her, who, what her last movements were, and that information is vital to starting that investigation process and who might have been involved in her death. It's really important 
One, from a policing point of view, because it gives us a starter for telling of where our inquiries go and who we need to speak to um, when the victim was last seen. Basically, their movements and their lifestyle, and is there anything obvious that may have, you know, triggered? It was their routine different? Have they met up with somebody different? And also for uh, the family of the victim as well. You know, they're going to have lots of questions, how, why and when. And if, you know, if they've been one of the last people to speak to them, then, you know, it's quite important that we establish what's happened from the last point of contact with that person to them, obviously then, you know, succumbing to any fatal injuries. And that's just what the investigators in 1912 did. They spoke to Jean Milne's family. But it turned out her nephew, who lived in Surrey, hadn't seen her since the July of that same year, and her niece in Forfa hadn't seen Jean Milne since Jean was a child. So where would Helen Ireland turn to next? It depends on the circumstances, but in the, the case of Jean Milne, obviously you would, the, the, I know there was mail, a postman had obviously noticed that her mailbox was stacking up and that's what first raised the concern. So he'd be the first port to call um, to see when he'd last seen her. Um, and then, like, obviously speaking to neighbours. Um, so you get, you know, you can get a general timeline to begin with and then we can bring that in um obviously today's type of inquiries you've got the likes of cctv and mobile phone data and stuff which can and once that's interpreted that can bring the timelines in a little bit we'll come back to the potential for digital investigation in a case like this but let's start with what we know from the postman james slidders Here's his account, taken from the evidence files of the case against the main suspect, Charles Warner, and read by an actor. If you want to follow the files as you listen, you'll find a link on the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee's website. About a month ago, from Thursday the 31st of October or Friday the 1st of November 1912, between 10 and 10.30am, I met Miss Mellon running up Grove Road towards the car route in Strathern Road. She was on the opposite side of the street from me and nodded to me but did not speak to me. On the week ending the 26th of October 1912, I knew the letterbox on Miss Milne's back door had not been emptied for several days and during the week ending the 2nd of November 1912, it was getting quite full of letters. I had difficulty putting them in. On Friday the 1st of November 1912, I reported the matter to the postmaster. On Saturday, the 2nd of November 1912, about 8pm, I met Constable Brown in Duntrain Terrace and told him how full Miss Milne's letterbox was getting and that surely something was wrong. I knew that the front door had not been opened since Thursday, the 31st of October 1912, as there was a small book or pamphlet on the handle of the door. There's lots of dates to get our head around. We know that the postman hasn't seen Jean Milne for the best part of a month. And you might recall from episode one, we also know from Sergeant John Forbes' statement that Jean Milne must have been dead for some time. She was lying on her right side, her left arm lying across her right arm, stretched out in front of her body. Her clothes were all full of blood, a half cotton sheet doubled, uncovering her back and back of head. I saw at once decomposition had set in. On further examination, I found her legs were tied at the ankles with a green curtain rope, produced number two. In the evidence files, the summary of the post-mortem, it's on page three if you're following the files as you listen to this, says that the death must have taken place between two and three weeks ago. 
But exactly how difficult or easy is it to determine the time since death? Here's forensic pathologist Dr Kerry-Ann Shearer. This is the million dollar question, to be fair, and this is the question that kind of programmes like CSI have made our life an absolute misery because of. It is very, very difficult. And I have to say, my rule of thumb a lot of the time is when were they seen alive? When were they seen dead? They're dead. They're Time of death is some time in between that, especially the cases that um, they're they're very fresh, and a lot of the homicides are found very quickly. They're found within a period of hours, or or to be fair, immediately. Uh, a lot of the time, the the ambulances are phoned immediately if someone's been stabbed. So it's it's a it's a really difficult one. Um, I mean, we we obviously have do have tools. Like I said, we've got rigor mortis, we've got post mortem changes. Um, we do have things like rectal temperatures. Um, I've done it twice in my career and it's caused nothing but problems. So again, you can take rectal temperatures and you can look at all sorts of algorithms to start to try and work back, but it's not accurate. And the problem with um, dead bodies are they are all different and where they are found is all different. Uh, the, and if you put two bodies um, in the same place, with similar um, parameters surrounding them, environments surrounding them, they will decompose at different rates. They will develop rigor at different rates. They will develop hypostasis at different rates because it, it things like male, female, um, how, how much body fat do they have? Are they clothed? Are they partially clothed? What's the temperature outside? Is the temperature changing? Um, if there's something around them that stops the wind from reaching them, but doesn't the other person, it all alters how people decompose. So it's really, really difficult to be specific. Um, in the cases that I have been involved in, where it kind of needs to be a bit more specific because the time of death is really, really crucial, that tends to be the cases that are, the bodies are really decomposed. So they're, they're, they're down, they're down the line, they're weeks to months, potentially years sometimes when I've been involved with kind of bones that are being found. And that's the cases where we bring in um, the entomologists and they will try and be a bit more specific. Um, even then, I'm not sure how specific they can even be. It's still, it's never going to be down to kind of seconds, minutes or even days to weeks, to be honest, when you're looking at these sorts of cases. Uh, we, we try and be as helpful as we can, but I think... If you if we try and be too helpful, we're we're basically speaking out with an area of expertise that we can't actually stand up in court and and talk to. So we have to be really careful. But time of death is a is a really really difficult one. And and anybody who stands up and says that someone's died um, at ten a.m. on the second of November, then I'd love to know how they're gonna they're gonna prove that from an evidence-based point of view, because I don't think that sort of evidence is out there. I am Alex Prentice. I am the Principal Crown Counsel in Crown Office. There is always a, a danger of what is sometimes termed the white coat syndrome, that uh, someone comes in with a string of qualifications and experience and speaks of highly technical scientific matters, that the risk is that the jury just simply follow that and accept it, without question, where it's important to explore the nature of, of that evidence, to understand what database is being relied upon, where comparisons are made, for example, uh, and to know precisely where the limits are. So it, that is very important.
And one of the areas which sometimes features is the timing of the death, because that's something that we see in films and books, that the time of death can be stated precisely. That, as I understand it, is just not possible. A broad range of time can be indicated depending on the environment the, the deceased was in. There are a range of things that may help, but it would be quite wrong to think that we could fix the time of death at five o'clock on a Tuesday. That, that doesn't happen. What we do know from what little information there is about Jean Milne's post-mortem is that there may have been maggots present on the body. If you remember, the doctors involved in the post-mortem initially attributed the stab marks on Jean Milne's body as being caused by maggots rather than the carving fork. When the clothes were taken off, I noticed on the right side of the chest two round punctures, which I thought might have been caused by the fork. I drew attention of the doctors performing the examination to the punctures and it was suggested by them that there were maggot holes. In a modern investigation, those maggots may well help to narrow down the time frame for when someone died. Here's Professor Lucina Hackman again and a word of warning. The next three minutes are pretty graphic if you'd prefer to skip ahead. So flies will lay their eggs very quickly. Those eggs will hatch and the larvae will feed on the body. And we know that there were maggots here. Now what you have, because you have stab wounds here, the flies will lay their eggs around those stab wounds because larvae can't get through skin. So they'll look at um, areas that they can get into the body um, where they don't have to actually go through the skin because they can't. So they will have laid their eggs around um, stab wounds, around the mouth, around the eyes, areas like that, the nose. The larvae will have hatched and then um, feed. And the rate at which those larvae grow, the maggots grow, um, is related to the temperature of the um, area. There's other things that affect. So if we're outdoors, which we're not in this case, um, if you have a downfall of rain, that can wash larvae away and drown them. So that can change um, the situation. But if you've got something, um, a situation like this, where you've got the bodies indoors, where it's protected from the elements, Today, what would happen is those maggots would be recovered. The entomologists, the forensic entomologists, would look at the age, how old those maggots were, um, and maggots will go through three molts as they go through and grow, and then their final molt, and they will become a fly and, and change into fly. They'll go off, they'll pupate and become flies. Now, that is linked to temperature. So the forensic entomologist will take the temperature of the room, work out um, how that changes and how that relates to the temperature outside, look at how the temperature was outside so they can then calculate the uh, temperature indoors and they will then be able to give you, depending on the age of the maggots and how old that maggots were, a time since death interval. From when the flies first laid their eggs through to the stage the maggots are at at the time they were recovered. And that would have given a much more accurate timeline. And now maggots have been used historically for many years. They were first used in casework prior to this time, but they would, it was just starting to be known. And I would, I would suspect that probably that information hadn't really come through. The other issue, of course, is that because the maggots are feeding around the um, stab wounds, then they may well have changed that. So it would have been quite difficult to identify those with stab wounds and they were mistaken. But any time a forensic entomologist comes across a body where they've got a large amount of maggots that have obviously accessed the body 
through anything other than the nose and the eyes and the mouth, then they will start to look for the fact that there was potential for injuries such as stab wounds or, or something similar that's allowed the maggots access to the body. So it's possible, had the investigation team of 1912 known more about the behaviour of maggots, they'd have picked up on the role of the carving fork sooner. In the absence of tools like CCTV, social media or mobile phones, what do the Broughty Ferry Police have to go on when it comes to Jean Milne's last known movements? Well, they have evidence in the form of a newspaper which was found at the scene, as noted by Police Sergeant Forbes. Chief Constable Semple found an evening Telegraph newspaper, 5th edition, dated the 14th of October 1912, produced number 30. Of course, you'd want to establish how often Jean Milne took a newspaper. They also have eyewitness accounts of when Jean Milne was last seen. Reading through those, it quickly becomes clear that it's really difficult to pinpoint when she was killed. In spite of some witnesses saying they saw Jean Milne as late as the 23rd of October, in summary, the files say the following. The evidence as to when Miss Jean Milne was last seen alive is very unsatisfactory, but everything points to the murder having been committed either on the 15th or 16th of October 1912. According to Commander Dave McLaren of the Metropolitan Police, eyewitness testimony was, and still is, a key part of any investigation. So, so eyewitness evidence is really important in all murder investigations. Uh, clearly significant witnesses to every murder investigation. Um, you know, we are very careful about the way that we um, gather witness accounts from them. Um, you know, that has been developed over a number of years and making sure that we can be, that that evidence from the witnesses is untainted as it possibly can be. Um, and and there's safeguards put in place as well around about witnesses that might be vulnerable. You know, for example, I see that there were there were three kids that were interviewed as part of the investigation. Um, makes no real mention of their parents being present or their parents being aware of the fact or any sort of appropriate support for them in providing the statement. And actually, the focus of the statement is the description of a individual probably six weeks before this statement was taken. So we're asking a 13-year-old about a male person that they saw six weeks ago. Um, you could see how it would be quite easy for that evidence to be tainted in some way. But, but as I say, um, again, the focus very much in a lot of the witness statements is actually very strong in terms of the victim and her background and the people, the people that she frequented her travels with or the people that came to, to visit her. But when it comes to the suspect and any other suspicious ongoings there, it was very much focused on that individual. And that individual was a Canadian man called Charles Warner, alias R.A. Hart, alias C.S. Ware, alias Charles Stanley Walker. The evidence files we've been using throughout the Inside Forensic Science podcast come from the case against Charles Warner. So why is he the main suspect? Eyewitness accounts suggest that a man was seen entering Elm Grove in the grounds of the house and leaving Elm Grove around the date that the police think Jean Milne may have been murdered. The investigation team then quickly turned their attention to London, where Jean Milne was known to spend a lot of time, and the suggestion is that Warner, who was already under arrest for dodging a hotel bill and fits a description of the man's scene, may have met Jean Milne on one of her many trips. For Commander Dave McLaren, the focus on London and Warner raises some interesting points. My take on the investigation was that they 
um, very quickly focused in on this Warner individual and all their efforts seemed to be around how they could um, evidence that he was responsible um, without there being really much of a focus, it seemed, on um, you know criminals in the local area, people in the local area who perhaps um, had, a, had some sort of grudge or a dislike into the victim. It seemed to be, you know, all eggs in one basket, so to speak. It's really interesting. In, in one of the, the newspaper articles, there's a letter from a local resident who is um, complaining about the number of police officers in Broughty Ferry by comparison to Dundee. So you then start to think about, so it's the chief constable of Broughty Ferry who is leading the investigation, who actually, if you, if you think about it, also has the responsibility prior to the crime of keeping everyone safe. And you do wonder whether, you know, there is no way that I couldn't have been doing my job and that someone within the community under my nose um, committed this crime. It had to be someone who's come in from outside who I didn't know who's committed. You know, you, you, you could you could kind of read between the lines there that actually uh, this is such a safe community and we've made it a safe community. Actually, it has to be someone from outside. I mean, I could be wrong with that, but it was an interesting story there where the... Um, where there's clearly community impact. You know, we talk about community impact a lot in modern-day investigations, and this, the legitimacy of the local police force has been brought into question by a letter that's there from a member of the public um, at a time when I would suspect that that newspaper will be the main way that people in Broughty Ferry get news, um, and, and that will be where, I guess, some of the pressure on the chief constable during his investigation will come. The onus was then on the chief constable and the investigation team to prove that Warner had committed the murder. So they started the arduous task of gathering more eyewitness accounts and setting up identity parades. In a contemporary investigation, some of that work might have been done through the collection and analysis of digital evidence. So I think where digital forensics would help um, in a case like this is if, if we're, where a suspect was identified it'd be really easy for us to be able to, you know, I'm not saying necessarily rule them in to the murder, but certainly say whether they had been in the area, whether or not, you know, for example, they'd booked travel there, um, accommodation in the area, whether they had, um, you know, made purchases when they were in the area. Um, but, it, but I think the digital forensics nowadays would allow us to certainly rule someone out. Which, which quite often is as much an assistance to an investigation as anything else. So if, for example, that individual were able to say that they were in another part of the country or indeed another country at the time, then you could very quickly rule them out of the investigation and focus elsewhere. Digital evidence, or more commonly uh, smartphones being used by people, can provide a very rich harvest of information. Mobile telephones bounce off masts and the location of these masts can be recovered. It's not able to pinpoint precise streets, but it is possible to show the uh, azimuth or the area in which the mask covered, which shows a connection with a particular phone. So if you have a series of these, for example, a journey from east to west, then you can plot that the device has travelled in that area. It doesn't necessarily prove who had the device, but it's a highly important piece of evidence. In Warner's case, digital evidence could have placed him in Broughty Ferry at or around the time of the murder. 
Something else which could have placed him in Broughty Ferry, and specifically in Elm Grove at the time of the murder, would have been his fingerprints. Blood spatter specialist Joe Millington. If you're investigating this, there would there would be this raft of potential evidence available to us. And to be honest, I would say, do you know what? Just park that for 20 minutes because when you look in the scullery, there's a towel which has blood staining on it, which is right next to an apparent finger mark or handprint on the on the tabletop, I think. And 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 the information the officer at the case in the case, the officer in the case, he said I think the assailant has washed their hands there. And I found the imprint of three fingers on a piece of paper near the sink where a blood-stained towel was found and where it is thought the murderer washed his hands. My goodness me, you would be right on that. <laughs> you know, that, that, that towel, that little towel there, which is so innocuous in the, in the grand scheme of things and all this big distribution of bloodstains, that's it. That's the that's the ticket. You do the fingerprints in blood on the tabletop. That could potentially link it to a potential assailant. We look at the towel for various bits and bobs, including DNA, which of course wouldn't have been available to them at the time. But nowadays, that would be the absolute focus of the investigation in terms of who, what, why and when, really. Fingerprint evidence is very important. It, it doesn't feature quite as often nowadays because of other techniques such as DNA. Uh, however, a fingerprint, generally speaking, indicates direct contact, whereas DNA could be secondary contact. So if a fingerprint is found at a location, that can be very significant. If a murder is committed in a house and a fingerprint is discovered which links the fingerprint to a person who is not otherwise connected to the house, that indicates that the person has been there uh, and that can be very significant. If the fingerprint is linked to someone who is a known visitor to the house, then that may lose its significance. If, for example, the fingerprint were made in wet blood and that fingerprint was found at a time when a body was found in the house and the body had been bleeding, then if the blood could be shown to be that of the deceased, that would be very compelling evidence. But even if the blood was not shown or could not be proved to be that of the deceased, but I don't mean excluded, simply not being able to prove the link, that still would be very significant. Uh, and there has been a case in Scotland where a fingerprint in wet blood found in circumstances where the blood of the deceased was found elsewhere on a sink and this fingerprint was on a tap and while they couldn't prove with certainty that the blood in the fingerprint was that of the deceased it was still a fingerprint of someone unconnected with the house and therefore no explanation was provided for that and that was sufficient to justify conviction for murder. Alex Prentice, QC. We know from the evidence files that the police team were well aware of the potential importance of gathering fingerprints and they describe actively looking for them at the scene. So everybody has fingerprints. Fingerprint subject matter expert Caroline Gibb. People's fingerprints, which is on the 
palmar surfaces of our hand and the plantar surfaces of our feet are developed during embryological development. So we're born with fingerprints um, and they remain, well, I wouldn't say unchanged because there's ageing and everything, but they remain unchanged unless there's scar until decomposition. Um, now, what happens particularly in the instances of someone committing a crime when we get into an excited state, we're exuding sweat. Um, we've got uh, three different types of sweat glands on our body. On our palmar surfaces, so the palms of our hands and the soles of our feet, there is an abundance of ecrine glands. Now, ecrine glands are, are predominantly water secretion, um, whereas on the rest of our body we have sebaceous glands. And sebaceous glands, when they come into contact with water, create this waxy substance which is called sebum, and that coats the skin so it keeps us moist and, um, yeah, moisture. This is why we use moisturiser after a shower, for example. Um, now, when we come into contact, we're always touching ourselves or touching our hair or our face, and you don't know it, but you are. And so when we are coming into contact with the surface, then there's a deposit or a transfer of material. And, and you may be familiar with Locard's Law, which is uh, paraphrasing. It generally says there's a transfer of material or every contact leaves a trace. And there'll be a transfer of material. If you touch a tabletop, you will take some of that table. You won't take the table with you. You'll take the, whatever's on the surface of the table, <laughs> uh, you know, like the dust or blah, blah, blah. And, and you will also leave a deposit behind you know, if you haven't just washed your hands. So when you're going into a crime scene to process a crime scene, the first thing that you're looking at is the surface. Okay, what surface can yield what finger marks? Um, I'm looking for porous surfaces, so papers um, or semi-porous cardboards, anything that can absorb a fingerprint. And I'm also looking for non-porous surfaces. So shiny, smooth surfaces are our friends. So glass is amazing for fingerprints or freshly painted wood, for example, that doesn't have texture and striations and people coming through windows, you know. Um, so we're looking at the surface. Then the fingerprint examiner will always be taught about the deposit, so your, your glands. So what deposit is left behind may very well in these days be representative of what chemical treatment or what uh, developmental treatment you're going to use. Protein stains, amino acids kind of stains. Um, we've got chemicals that will, um, for example, enhance prints in blood. So they'll they'll target the haemoglobin. Um, powders, of course, are physical. They'll attach to the moisture that's left behind. And um, what else is there? And forensic light source, of course, so we can get fluor the most beautiful luminescent fluorescent fingerprints these days because the chemicals of the deposit that are left on a surface. So when we when we go in, we look at the surface, we think about what developmental technique we're going to use, and then we apply the developmental technique based on the surface and the matrix of the deposit. So with that in mind, what did Caroline make of the Jean Milne scene in terms of the potential for fingerprint evidence? Oh, incredible. I went through the entire list of, um, of, of things and circled everything. I'm like, oh, the amount of surfaces you could use to develop finger marks in this case. Yeah, it, this is what, what I found so phenomenal, like reading about this stuff in 1912. It's like, oh, wow, science. Um, well, the one I have in front of me starts um, with, well, it says item 31 at the top. Here, Caroline is looking at page 10 from the evidence files if you want to go and look at the productions list for yourself. Starts with a carving fork stained with blood. The carving fork, produced, was found on the floor near the body 
the prongs being partly under the open travelling case. They've got the knife and the steel, or you would do a forensic light source. You would process that with super glue. Um, you would potentially use a fluorescent stain. If there was blood on it, you would use a protein stain. You could let it dry. You could use a low-wave UV to, to see if you could visualise something outside of the visible spectrum. There was also a tin box unlocked, a travelling case open, two handbags shut on the south side of the hall between the middle room door and the dining room door. The handbags, you could certainly use something like a, a metal deposition procedure, which of course didn't come until about the late 60s. Her clothes were all full of blood, a half cotton sheet doubled, uncovering her back and back of head. I actually found, I've got this book in front of me, but on page 131 I found, because what I found um, interesting in this case was the body was covered with a white sheet. And it says here, word for word, Several identifiable prints, this is not related to this case by the way, this is related to another case. Several, several identifiable prints were successfully recovered from a sheet used to cover up a homicide victim. And they processed, this was published in the Journal of Forensic Identification in 2000. Um, and they processed that sheet and it had blood on it with Amido Black, which is a protein stain. But if it's a cotton sheet, you can use indane dione zinc or an inhydrin analogue, which is a protein stain. Like, there's all these things that you can use. I just found that fascinating um, that I found that particular piece on the sheet. And, you know, I mean, fabrics were always very hard to get finger marks off. So the fact that you can get finger marks off fabrics and leathers and all that these days is quite phenomenal. You could process majority of the items on, on this, even the gold brooches, you would super glue them. Um, you'd always use a forensic light source. Anything that you look at first is always a forensic light source. If you're doing DNA, then you try and take the swab before you destroy it with our fingerprint mess. You know, most fingerprint people working on <laughs> in crime scenes or in the laboratory love making a mess. A glass vase produced was lying on the floor near the head of the body, which had been knocked off the small table shown in the photograph. Uh, the flower vase as well. I mean, that's a perfect, beautiful surface for fingerprints. Even if it was wet, you could have let it dry and process it with super glue, light, fluorescent stains. So, yeah, this would have been huge. And you would go with the team. You would definitely um, need about two or three people, particularly when you're looking at stairs and staircases as well, because you've got that surface that curves around. So you're not just looking on the top of the surface. You're looking at the side and the bottom and trying to photograph those surfaces are also very difficult. Um, so, yeah, this would have been, in this day and age, a very, very big crime scene. But I think it would have been a successful crime scene if it came to being, uh, forensic evidence. If you'd like to hear more from Caroline Gibb about the process of finger mark comparison, then head to the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee's website. So far as the 1912 crime scene, we know that in spite of the potential for that bloody towel and all those productions, they weren't able to recover any useful prints. They did try. One print was sent off for analysis, but it wasn't clear enough. In the next episode of Inside Forensic Science podcast, we'll be focusing on what has perhaps been the biggest game changer in crime scene investigation since 1912, DNA. If this was con a contemporary case, well, Without doubt, the very first thing we'd be looking at is DNA. Now, DNA evidence really only became part of the forensic science toolbox in the mid-1980s. And that's not just in the UK, but globally. 
In Inside Forensic Science, the readings were by Andrew Thompson, Mark Stephen, David Stenhouse, Richard Forbes and Dan Holland. The researcher was Heather Duran, the consultant was Pauline Mack and the narrator was me, Penny Latin. Inside Forensic Science is an adventurous audio limited production for the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee and is funded by the Leverhulme Trust. <laughs>